And now, Truth of Lies. Episode 4. My heart will go on. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to Truth of Lies. My name is Tony Horn. I am a ghostwriter and podcaster. I'm in Lancashire and in East Bolden in the northeast of England, Julie Phillips. We are unraveling the events of late January 2002. Essentially, Sierra Leone, 27th of January 2002, Corporal Michael Phillips is killed alongside his colleague James in a road traffic accident in Sierra Leone. And then piecing together the story proves very hard to do. On our last episode, we explained how Michael's body was being brought back into, frankly, any airport you fancy and went missing for four days. I think the people at the top knew where Michael's body was, but crucially, his wife, Julie, didn't have that information, nor was it made very easy for her to obtain that information. So that's where we're up to. The next event in the sequence is quite clear, and that is the funeral. The 11th of February... 2002 that date's correct yeah yes but it wasn't the 11th of feb 2002 at first was it no it was i can't exactly remember the date but it was set before then everything was booked the hymn books were printed the dates were on Everything, everything was good to go for the, that day, and the pathologist didn't sign a piece of paper to release Michael's body, and the coroner had gone away for a few days on holiday. A couple of things there. Firstly, the obvious question is: is that an oversight from the? pathologist or is it something underhand and the other point I think is that we talked previously about the might of the organization the hugeness that in effect Julie will take on of the Ministry of Defense but with that as Julie is on autopilot at best, you are assigned a the family officer to help with arrangements. So that doesn't look like that went too well. I think it was a major cock up because then again, obviously, when I heard that the funeral wasn't going to go ahead. I'm sure I was at the mortuary visiting Michael 
when the family's officer got a phone call. And then obviously I had to ring Michael's parents. And you can imagine it didn't go down well at all. So the pathologist would be doing this kind of work day in, day out. You know, releasing a body for a funeral should be a second nature for someone in that line of work as getting up in the morning. But how late in the day did that cancellation come? Because it's not the actual day itself and everything's printed and everything's ready to go. And someone realised that it hadn't been signed off even a day before. Don't you just go and sign it off and we just carry on where we thought we were. Not as easy as that. Obviously, the coroner had gone away, hadn't signed papers to release Michael's body um, for the funeral undertakers. Um, so all the plans and preparation in place for the funeral that was meant to go ahead had to be cancelled. I mean, there was a coach, there was coaches on, from coming from South Shields down to Wheaton Barracks, all the family and friends, buffet, flowers. I think everything was everything was, you know, ready to go and then it had to be put back. Nothing they could do at all. I don't think I'll ever at this stage in life be likely to take the career path to become a coroner but when i go on holiday i make sure everything that needs to be done for that period is done or i leave instructions with somebody trusted to ensure that is carried out this sounds like a comedy of errors is added to a truth of lies i i find it staggering that when you are clearly playing with people's lives that this can be so casual in your heart and you probably as time goes on always want to believe conspiracy what would you say over two decades later? Would you say that's incompetence or would you say it was part of a darker, bigger picture? I still think now, even if I talk about it, people wouldn't actually believe what went on. Obviously, I'm telling it now. And that's what happened. It was just... Mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And they hid things. They didn't tell us the truth. So that probably's made me more of a crazy woman. Because I was having to deal with all all of that. Like like it was all the time. Something went wrong. Something wasn't right. So yeah. We should define crazy there, and your 
you've earned the right to describe yourself as however you want. But crazy could be interchanged with possessed, driven, meticulous, truth-seeking. You're not crazy as in, oh, we've got that psycho Julie Phillips on the phone again, although they may well have said that. They may have called you crazy, but your craziness is you is all those things really, isn't it? It's it, it's the quest yeah, for the did truth. Call us crazy. Keep keep away from that crazy Mrs. Phillips. And and I know and I was I was wow. told that. And you know, you know, yeah. Probably was to them. It's really important when we talk about things like that that we try and work out when that would have been said. So you would say that that was around the time of the funeral and on other occasions since, I, I guess. You, you were dubbing you crazy from the off. When when I went over to camp and I recorded the guys in the lead vehicle, I, I knocked on the door and he came and I said, do you know who I am? He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, look, I just want to know a few questions. You would you would be the same if, if you were in my shoes. I just want to know. I wanted to know how long it took for them. How long did it, how long were they back in camp when they found out was, there was an accident? And how long did it take them from camp to get to the accident? I just wanted a couple of things. And he went, I'll, I'll get me bollocks chopped off for talking to you. And I went, sorry? And he went, well, yeah, we've we, we've just been told not to speak here. We're not allowed. And I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe so, they didn't mention crazy then. You know what I mean? But later they did. Oh, it's crazy Mrs. Phillips. Keep out the way of her. Mrs. Phillips is on a high horse. And how, how do you know that? Because I was told. A couple of things from that conversation about the lead vehicle. Let's remember that you go in convoy for a reason, all sorts of reasons, from basic traffic conditions to being in a foreign terrain. They were in convoy, and that lead vehicle went ahead. So at no point in what you've just outlined there do I get that sense of guilt from the driver of the lead vehicle, I think you said, that clearly is, well, a schoolboy error and part of the problem. And at no point in the previous episodes, by the way, did you say that anybody from camp came back out to the vehicle you said it was locals that took the bodies to the police station so let's just straighten that out did the lead vehicle or other vehicles return to the scene i think eventually when i recorded him i asked him i said how long 
were you back in camp before you knew about the accident? He said, about 10 minutes, about 10 minutes. I said, really? I said, and how long did it take you to get from camp to the accident site? And he said, about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, if that. I later found out it was over two hours. I'm not sure how long it was, how long they'd been in camp for until they found out the accident had happened, but it took them over two hours to get from camp to the accident site. Well, in these situations, sometimes it is very difficult to recall minutes, half hours, but what underpins all of that is what you said in the previous episode, which is that Michael was taken by some locals to mm -hmm. a police station. So when and if they got there, oh, 10 minutes is a short period of time. Well, it's embarrassing at least. And if you think about it, if it takes 10, 15 minutes to get back to somewhere where 10, 15 minutes before an accident had happened, realistically, when locals arrive at the scene and there's chaos and speculation, and you never want to move a body that you might know to be injured or not alive. It's difficult to see that the, the narrowness of the window there that he has offered you fits with the reality that the locals enacted in the moment on the scene, in my and, opinion. I know, because when I spoke to the driver when he came to my house, he said nobody came. Well, nobody came. They didn't have help. Nobody came. He was left on his own with the other guy. So, so you were lied to in that undercover yeah. recording. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I guess you've never done anything like that before in your life. No, you know, <laughs> an undercover recording. Well, I just needed to know. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know by this time. To This was only two days later that they flew back home. So... I didn't know anything. I didn't know 100%. I didn't know all the answers about the accident and what happened and how long. And I, I didn't I didn't know anything by then. I, I bet when you walked out after recording that, because people like me who've been in the audio game all their lives, the one thing you say is that better of recording. <laughs> Was that the only time you went undercover? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I gave it straight to my yeah. solicitor, and he was like, "How did you get that?" I just did. Went to Argos and I bought it, and I had a plan, and I knew they were coming back, and I found out which barracks they were in, which room, and I went and knocked on the door. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because anybody that's ever tried to unravel uh, cases where. The truth is questioned, police officers, clearly. The lies come back to haunt you. It's a struggle to keep up with lies, but also the intonation that people give off when they tell those lies is as revealing. You were face-to-face. -face. You could see the body language. I know you well enough to know that you can tell someone who's looking shifty and someone who's looking transparently honest. You said a few moments ago about people hiding things. Now, obviously, 
what you've alluded to there is not necessarily concealment, but it's actually an alternative truth which doesn't seem to have much substance. In the time before the funeral, we've already discussed the fact that there was some debate about who was driving. We've alluded to the fact that the vehicle wasn't roadworthy. And obviously, there's the issue of Michael's body coming back into the country. Can you think of anything else that became apparent in those days that was concealed from you? The day that I went over, um, I, we have already spoke, haven't we, about when I went over to camp and I kicked off with Michael's commanding officer. Yeah. When I left there, we came back to the house and me and my friend Sarah, who was heavily pregnant, hid in the house and the family's officer was knocking on the door because obviously he was panicking because we still couldn't find Michael's body and I wouldn't answer the door and he was ringing my house phone and he didn't hang up and I'm not sure whether he must have had another phone on him but he took another phone call so while he was on this phone call my voicemail picked it up and it was yeah 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 she's she's gone she's got she's she's gone over to camp and yeah she's not happy and She's come on home and I'm trying to get in the house and she won't answer the door. And now forensics are looking at um, doing ballistic report. Yeah, there was two shots, bang, bang, from the vehicle. Must have been the weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and this was all on my voicemail. And me and Sarah just sat there and were wow. like, so he's been shot. He's been shot twice and they're, they're doing for like forensics are checking. And it's like, yeah, that wasn't true, apparently, but. Wow. That's what they were looking into at the time. So that's very, very interesting because on these levels, when you are the family's officer in a military context, I have no experience of this, but I would expect the role to be the same as a family liaison officer assigned to a family in police duties. Now, I know for a fact that whilst the family liaison officer in police duties has to comfort and console the family and show them the, I suppose, routes to coping with what lies ahead, and sometimes that will be a funeral, an inquest, media, I have been told by a former police officer, and if you've been following some of the work that I've been doing, you won't need too many brain cells to work out what I'm alluding to. But the role of the family liaison officer is more than that because they're also a spy. And they present themselves as individuals who have nothing but your interests at heart, but they are reporting everything back. And I think that this is a colossal point because if you can't trust the family's officer and there are messages like that on your voicemail, then the military, the Ministry of Defence, your employer, Michael's employer, are working against you and not with you. And that's a massive, massive difference. The other point about that voicemail is that there's clearly speculation that is common knowledge amongst certain circles that something else might have happened. And the first that Julie knows about this, whether it turns out to be true or not, and we think not, she again finds out by accident. You did describe in an earlier episode how the gun was positioned in, in a Wimmock. Just to underline, that turned out not to be the case, yeah, that we don't believe that there were any shots fired. Well, I assume as an accident in, in a collision rather than deliberately yeah. mm -hmm. shots fired. 
But that's correct. We don't think there were yeah. shots fired. So how has that rumour started? Yeah. Survivors of that vehicle, or I don't see how the lead convoy could have. I mean, it, it's a very small group of people that could have started that non-story. I don't know. First I heard was when he was telling my voicemail. It. What did you do with that information? I told Miss Lister. Rather than confront them. I did confront them. them. But I can't even remember what they said by then, because I think maybe I just had enough. Do you know what I mean? It was just like one thing after another thing after another. And I just thought, seriously? I think it was a case of like they were looking into everything. And obviously it was a big hoo-ha. Him leaving the voicemail on my... I don't know who he was talking to. I, I don't I don't know. What I hope you understand from listening to this, uh, I'll spell it out. I mean, I think it's worth taking on board she's preparing for a funeral this is all exhaustion and stress and i think from personal experience when you are chasing the lies you can question ordinary things as part of everyday life you you don't know who to trust you don't know what a truth is anymore julie when you first went to that solicitor what was their reaction to you did they think you were crazy or did they think <laughs> i took my, I <laughs> took they... my sister <laughs> and we went to one solicitor's office and they were busy so i went to the next one and she was like and i was i don't i don't even know what i said i can't remember what i i, I need help i need help my husband's been killed in the you know in the army in sierra leone and they're not telling us, I don't know. I think I just blurted a load of whatever out. And I saw the fact it was a family solicitor. He dealt with, like, family law. And me and my sister went in and we were in there for ages. I don't know what he actually thought, but he was the only one I could really talk to. Like, I could trust. I couldn't trust anybody. I didn't trust anybody, and I wasn't going to talk to anybody else because I'd literally had enough by then. And obviously things got worse, you know what I mean, coming up to the funeral. So I didn't trust anyone. Truth of lies. It's difficult to know who one would turn to in this situation. I suppose the only thing you could do now, and, you know, 2002, Googling something would give you a limited snapshot compared to today. But in that situation, what I think you would probably do is try to find a law firm that had represented other widows, widowers, and cases against the Ministry of Defence. I think this is uh, something that comes with massive implications for the law firm. I mean, clearly, it's going to be a long battle. Funding it could be an issue for a client like Julie. There could be press. And getting answers out of an organisation like the Ministry of Defence might be a red flag to some solicitors. In any first meeting that any individual has with a lawyer when they feel aggrieved. I think you do go in there and you blurt it all out. But there's enough in what you've said over the past three episodes. And again, I, I know the skeleton of this story, but Julie's telling me stuff that I don't know. And there are colossal moments, red flags, that you would go, I'm interested in this. That doesn't sound right at all if you were, if you were the lawyer. Did 
the lawyer give you any advice about how you should conduct yourself in this period they're watching you be careful who you trust all that kind of stuff he was the family lawyer he was the kind of owner joint owner and then there was a younger solicitor who dealt with you know, another different type of law and they put the case to him and they knew somebody a barrister in london who'd dealt with military law so there you go yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and just to rewind to a point i made about funding it is this going to bankrupt you or is there a way to do this well obviously back then it was no win no fee so i i suppose i was lucky in one way because i i I wouldn't have been able to afford it i would have had to have took them on myself without any lawyers and i would have but i don't know and julie is it is it not no win no fee now if you find yourself in this situation Um, because one thing that you would one thing you would think was that the ministry of defense are not worried about time and they would work on the basis that will run down the clock and this person might not have the stamina for the fight or the funds mm-hmm. for the fight I'd, i know now well obviously the last how many years i know a lot of families iraq afghan who've lost husbands wives sons daughters and obviously from deep cut who couldn't really pursue because they weren't entitled to legal aid so I know there's a lot of families, a lot, we're talking hundreds, thousands, who probably don't know answers how their loved ones were killed because they can't afford it. They haven't got, you know, I keep, I keep well, saying like the MOD is huge. I don't think people realise how big they are and and how long it can take. I'm grateful that you said that. And I think it's important for people just to take a moment to muse over the conflicts that we've been in. Mm-hmm. And different from trying to come to terms with politicians' motivations for going to war and some of the cases there that Julie mentions, highly sceptical. But families are picking up the pieces all over the place and are probably struggling to get the support that they need. And with that, therefore, comes so many untold stories. If you think that after two decades, we are lifting the lid on this, there are stories that are older and that have happened since that need airing. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot. And a lot. Dare I say it, this is what we do. And if you think this narration is, is decent value, then, well, you know where we are. We moved sideways from the actual funeral i mean i've never heard anything like it that a funeral could get postponed we know from recent experience in covid that we can get delayed but i've never heard anything like that i'm assuming as well by the way michael's so young this is the first time you've had to organize a funeral in in your life i didn't really organize yeah. it to be honest i kind the kind of asked it was a it was a big military funeral the kind of funeral undertakers asked us what flowers what hymn hymns but no i'd never you but know. i think that that experience would be familiar to many people i mean it's one of those things that we don't have a lot of experience of and that's where the companies that organize funerals come in and and suggest suggest things and 
Um, I was thinking about this earlier today, and I was trying to think about what I would ask about the funeral. And one thought, one life thought came to my mind, and that was that unless we all die homeless, penniless, and broke, there's a chance that more people will come to your funeral in terms of numbers, 20, 30, 40, than you will actually go to funerals themselves in your life. And also the other thing that I thought was, I feel that after 9-11, and there were some quite high-profile deaths in this country in the noughties, Reese Jones made even more in the public conscious by the drama Little Boy Blue. I remember watching the Everton game after that, and it wasn't the first time this happened, but we started to get into a minute applause rather than a minute silence. And in that era, people started to use the phrase a celebration of life as much as a funeral. Now, obviously, that's a mental way of coping. It can be beautiful if you can see it through. But, I mean, this is particularly tough, of course, because Michael is 30 when he dies. There is a sort of a shift in this millennium about how people deal with death and market but we can be nowhere near that territory and going back to the rearranging of the funerals i mean that impacts on so many people's lives you might say well a coach load of people coming from the northeast go again on another day but it's not like that you know all of those people have got their own stories from their job to their kids to building themselves up to attending a funeral. What was the time span between the proposed first funeral and the actual funeral? What, five days, maybe something like that. Yeah. So how do how do we overcome the elusive paperwork, the disappearing coroner, and the forgetful pathologist? I rang the coroner. <laughs> I got the number from you know, ringing round everybody again as usual. I don't know whether I spoke to the pathologist or the coroner's office or I don't know whether I spoke to his secretary or... And obviously, he'd gone away for a few days. There was nothing they could do, full of apologies. And I think that was it. At this time, of course, we should remember that James also died. I feel like I might have asked you this before, but it's worth reiterating because obviously theirs is a parallel story, James's family. Did you have any dialogue or share any information with James's family? No, just at the inquest, which was about 18 months later. So with all that stuff that you know, the set of circumstances are, as I understand it, identical for them. They 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 knew even less than you. It was his dad. I just briefly spoke to him, just said, did you know he was alive? And I was trying to obviously explain things. I don't know what they told him or I don't I don't know. I mean, there could be many reasons for that undeniable grief. Two, some people do accept everything that they hear from the Ministry of Defence. Three, maybe he thought yeah. you were crazy. Mm-hmm. But I think if you work this story back from the end, you certainly... It's proven had uh, knowledge and insight that I guess they would have they would have benefited from. Did you did you go to James's funeral? Did they come to Michael's? Wasn't allowed. Well, no, nothing was mentioned. Um, 
I don't know where he had his feet. I don't I don't know. I know Michael's family had asked because Michael's mum had asked about sending a card, etc. But she was kind of told no. And both the survivors were told not to go to Michael's funeral. Said I didn't want them there. Yeah, they were told that you yeah. didn't want them there. So let's see. Can you break down? Can you give people listening some perspective as to who did attend? And who didn't attend? Was it fifty percent of people from the northeast? Was it two percent of people that were military? It's quite a lot of military. Michael's closest friends they carried a coffin. A lot from his company. Commanding officer didn't go. So I think I'm deducing there that anybody that was vaguely in the um, line of responsibility chain of command to the tours in Sierra Leone, the people that were out there at the time, that's a no-go. But those that knew nothing were free to go and did. Mm-hmm. The, the people in the lead vehicle were there, the lieutenant. That was the first time I'd seen them. Well, seen the lieutenant. Michael's commanding officer wasn't there. There was quite a few people who weren't there. Well, maybe they were back at the back of the church, but I'm not aware. A lot from his company, a lot of the young lads, his close friends, a lot of close friends who obviously weren't in that regiment anymore, had obviously moved on to different regiments and they came up, especially for the funeral. The two guys in the vehicle were Michael and James didn't didn't go. They were told no. And I think we spoke of this before but you were given you were given a photo weren't you and we 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 read into this well what do they say is it a picture paints a thousand words but this felt like a moment of guilt yeah his lieutenant came over to me at the um after the funeral at the wake and gave me a brown envelope and there was photograph a4 size and he said it was taken the day before they were killed there was the four of them stood i think there was two on the wimmick and two standing in front of the wimmick and the photo was taken i'm assuming he took it and he gave me it at the funeral in those situations try to unpick whether he did that for himself or for you in your opinion was that the wrong time to do that truth i don't i don't don't really know i don't i wasn't really with it do you know what i mean I, i was there but i wasn't there i was talking to people I wasn't really talking to people. It was a, it was a, a weird, bizarre day. It was weird. The first time I'd seen oh, him, obviously sorry. at the funeral, I, I can remember like as if I wasn't at my husband's funeral because obviously friends came down from up, obviously South Shields, Donna, and family were there, and so I think you know when you're trying to keep a face on things, kind of lid on things, and you. You're being polite and you're talking and I probably even laughed about things. I think I had a drink and I, I'm not, you know, I wasn't really a big drink and I don't even think that I'd had a drink since I'd had Holly, before I'd had Holly. And I do know that when I got home, it was my, my house was literally over the road from where we had the wake. I kind of broke down, like crying. My mum was there, my sister, all, well, all the family were. It was, it was a weird I day. I think that's probably normal. It's... It's the toughest day. You want it over, but over is so finite. Everyone else moves on at a speed ahead of you the next day. It's exhausting. Nervous energy, pent-up emotion, stress. The service itself, uh, can you remember much of it? Can you try and explain how you felt? It feels like a territory where you might have a glazed look over your face and it, it 
passes you by as a sort of wall of sound or were you hanging on every word because they were words that were kind tributes to Michael? I can remember it and I can't remember it, but I did have it videoed. I had the whole, a guy who obviously a professional who'd only ever done weddings and I contacted him and I asked him. And obviously for Holly, if Holly, there's nothing he, he stood right at, you know out yeah. the way you don't see him you just kind of see him videoing the hearse come in the, all the military the uniform in the chapel there's nothing it's quite quite a nice video to be honest and he plays music how many times would you say you've watched it over a lifetime i mean it's interesting isn't it because it's it's not something that it'll take a special set of circumstances to pull out that recording and it could probably sit there for a, after the initial times that you've watched it. It probably sits there for a few few years, but there will be a moment that provokes you to to watch it. But it's also like a strange comparison, perhaps. But when they talk about nuclear war and having nuclear weapons, their argument is about it's a deterrent. We'll never use them. We've got them. And the knowledge that you have got this, if you need it, if Holly wants to see it. But but I'm going to guess the reality is that you've watched it half a dozen times. I don't even think that. It's on VHS. There you go. And, and it's up in the loft. Yeah. yeah. So, it was on VHS, yeah. yeah. I, did, I did think about it because yeah. my wedding video also is on VHS. So I did think about having them put onto a disc. I never got round to it. It's, I, just, I just never got round to it. So it is interesting, though, because I don't think people were doing that then. Well, Two thousand and two, no. when people first started mooting ideas like that, it might have been deemed a bit tasteless. But it seems almost essential now. And I think, obviously, you know, COVID probably accentuated that point and opened up that market. Dare I say yeah. it? But it's. It feels like the way we deal with grief has been changing over the last two years, but we're in 2002. And, you know, one thing I would ask you is when you looked around at the congregation, were you just delighted to see so many people? Or did the presumably people in uniform, did that jar with you? And obviously I speak from the personal experience that my friend PC David Rathband did not want a police funeral, and yet, that was not respected. I just wasn't really bothered. I didn't care. Uh, there was a lot of people, a lot of people in the church. I can remember that, the chapel or the church. I can't remember. And presumably all those people that were going to come a few days before they all still came, yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you remember any moment in the funeral, a line of tribute, a reading, a song that was a... I don't want to say a standout moment, but if you hold back the movie in your mind to the VHS tape, you'd find yourself taking the pause button off. played certain music that I asked them to, Celine Dion, Toto Africa, and there was obviously one part of it, Michael's son, Jamie, who we'd had from a previous relationship. I think Jamie was only about eight or nine at the time. And he got up and did a speech. I don't think there was a dry eye in the, in the church. It was, yeah. Well, we've neglected to mention uh, Jamie at this 
until this point, but immense courage. When we continue with this podcast, we inevitably have to pick up the pieces, even from the day after the funeral, and ask the question, what happened next? Everybody else gets on with their life, but what does that mean for Julie and Holly? Next time on Truth of Lies. Up until that time, they'd never accepted anything. They denied all knowledge of having any liability at all. They didn't want her to go. They didn't want us to do a documentary over in Sierra Leone. To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com. Truth of Lies is a horny media and publishing production.